The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Hear God's word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly overhead, Come, Gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 19. I've made it abundantly clear that I love the Lord of the Rings, and I know that many of you do not. That's okay. It's a broken world. I've come to accept that. But in actuality, the reason that many of many people don't like Lord of the Rings uh, is because these books are not written like our modern novels. For instance, Uh, When juggling multiple storylines, a modern novel will take various storylines, plot lines, and it will interweave them and intercut them so that chapter to chapter you jump from this storyline over this one and they come back and forth, they cross over, it weaves them together. Lord of the Rings doesn't do that. Uh, When dealing with multiple storylines, it it will actually take one plot line and spend the entire first half of a book following that one plot line. Then... For the second half of the book, it will go back, cover the exact same time period following the other plot line. We're not used to that kind of storytelling, and thus it can be confusing. The final chapters of Revelation often seem confusing because they do something very similar to what I just described with Lord of the Rings. If you remember... Revelation chapter 16 gave us a big overarching picture of the end of of evil. 
And then what we began doing after that is we began zooming in. These final chapters zoom in and they retell that same story of the end of evil, but they do it through different lenses to to bring different things into focus. For the past few weeks, we've zoomed in on the fall of Babylon. Today, we're going to be zooming in on the end of the beast and the false prophet. And ultimately, next week, we will zoom in on the final defeat of the dragon, Satan. And these are not different events happening one after the other in succession. No, I think that we will clearly see that like Lord of the Rings, Revelation focuses on one plot line, and then it backs up. And it covers the same time, zooming in on another storyline. And then it backs up, zooming in and covering the same time on another storyline. And so, I told you, for the past couple of weeks, we've been zooming in on the fall of Babylon. Specifically, last week, if you remember, we contrasted Babylon's fall or Babylon's funeral with the wedding of the bride of Christ. We contrasted those in order to ask ourselves the question, to which people do we belong? Babylon or the bride? Remember, these are peoples. Babylon, the societies, the kingdoms of this world, the bride of Christ, the society of Christ, the the church. Are we a part of Babylon who rides on the back of the beast of this world? Do you remember that picture, that image from Revelation 17? The beast of this world. Revelation has shown us that the beast of this world are world powers. Remember, if you go back to the first century, the beast in the first century was Rome. The world power who set itself up as a type of false Christ, offering a false way of salvation. You buy into the life of Rome, you participate in our Babylon-type culture, and we will provide you with security and with satisfaction, power and prosperity. We can give you the salvation that you need. Come on, be a part of this Babylonian culture and climb onto the back of this beast. Shades, there are still beasts today. World powers come and world powers go and the beast persists. And in every generation, we are tempted to climb on its back and ride its power to prosperity. To find our security and satisfaction in what the beasts of this world can offer to look to Babylon for salvation. Are we a part of Babylon who rides the beast of this world or are we a part of the bride that follows Christ the bride that does what revelation 19 and verse 10 says the bride clings to the testimony of Jesus shades if we're honest that's not easy to do because so often the testimony of Jesus doesn't seem true like in a world of Babylon's and beasts, where beasts look powerful and Babylon's ride them to success and glory? Does it look like the testimony of Jesus is true? The testimony of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, what does it say? It says that Christ has conquered through His cross. It says that Christ is ruling and reigning. It says that Christ will win in the end. When you look around this world, does any of that seem like it's true? Does it look like Christ has conquered or does it look like beasts conquer? Does it look like Christ is ruling or reigning or does it look like beasts rule and reign? This world is filled with false prophets who proclaim all the day long that beasts are the ones who truly rule and reign. False prophets. You remember the false prophet in Revelation? A false prophet is the one who proclaims the glory of the beast, tries to get people to worship the beast. So in the first century of Rome, remember the the false prophet was epitomized by the imperial priesthood. 
the Roman imperial priesthood that literally tried to get citizens to worship Rome, give yourself to Rome, and Rome will provide you with security and satisfaction. Rome will provide you with salvation. And shades, this world is still full of false prophets hawking a false gospel to give you a false salvation on the promises of security and satisfaction. False prophets that fill our social media news feeds or our legit news feeds. There are false prophets constantly proclaiming that the beasts of this world are the ones who rule and reign. In a world like this, does it really look like Christ wins in the end? Or does it look like beasts win in the end? We may, here's, here's my point. We may have been told so far in our journey and our zooming in on the end, we may have been told that Babylon will fall, but shades, be honest with me, that's awfully hard to believe when the beast she rides seems like it will never die. Has Revelation not been honest with that? Has Revelation not shown us that when the beast dies, it rises again and rises again? In other words, when a world power falls, another one just takes its place. And then another one takes its place. And it seems like the powers of this world, the powers of evil will always endure until they win in the very end. How? In that world, how are we going to fight the temptation to follow such beasts and instead cling to Christ? How? How are we going to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus when it doesn't even look like the testimony of Jesus is true? That's our question, Shades. How are you in this world going to cling to the testimony of Jesus when it doesn't even look like it's true? Shades, the rest of Revelation 19 aims to empower us to do exactly that, to cling to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19 backs up to show us the end of evil again. But this time it's not zooming in on Babylon and the bride. This time it zooms in on Jesus and the beast so that we might see which one is the true and only true Christ. Showing us the end of evil again so that we might not be deceived to death but led to life, led to cling to the only true Christ. This is what Revelation 19 practically aims to empower us to do. Let's be empowered to do this together, Shades. Begin reading with me. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, if you can recall back in Revelation chapter 16, when we got our big overarching picture of the end of evil, back there, Revelation 16 and verse 14, the end of evil was actually pictured for us as a war, just like we're getting right here. In fact, I told you that the original Greek in Revelation 16, 14 specifically calls it the war. It's not just a general, generic battle. It's not just talking about warfare in general. No, this is a specific title. The book of Revelation only uses three times, and it uses it all three times to refer to the exact same event. Revelation 16 and verse 14, we're going to see that title, The War, again here in Revelation 19 and verse 19, and we will see it one more time next week in Revelation 20 and verse 19. Every time it's describing the exact same event. And every time this event is described, it is providing us more and more that will empower us to cling to Christ. 
right here in Revelation 19, I believe that there are three aspects of this war, the war, that we need to see. Three aspects that will empower us to cling to Jesus. Number one, the war of love. We need to see this as the war of love. This is where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time. Okay. We need to see that this war, the war, is the war of love. And we see that particularly through verses 11 to 16. Verses 11 to 16 give us a glorious description of the one who wages this war. Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, He judges and makes war. This is right after we just heard about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Like right after... Christ has been described to us as a bridegroom. The church has been described as his bride. Right after that, we get this vision, the vision of a groom coming to lovingly claim his bride. That's what this is unfolding right here. This is the clearest vision of the second coming of Christ that Revelation gives us. Heaven opens. Revelation has constantly revealed to us heaven's perspective. It's kind of taking us up. It's taken us up into glory multiple times so that we could get heaven's perspective on everything happening on earth. It's done that in order to beckon us to believe that no matter what things look like, no matter if it looks like beasts are ruling and reigning, no matter if all we hear around us is false prophets, no matter what it looks like, We're to see from the perspective of heaven that Christ has conquered. He does rule and reign. And one day he promises that he is coming to bring your salvation to completion. Evil will end. Jesus wins. This right here, Shades, this in Revelation 19.11, this is that day. Heaven opens and pours out its perspective. Its perspective is that Christ has already won. And now that perspective is poured out, proving it to be true. Christ comes riding on a white horse. That's a Roman symbol of victory. White horses were, were what you rode in a parade after you won the war. It's a symbol of, of victory. But notice right here, Christ is victorious before the war begins. There is no waiting in this passage to see what the results of this is. There's, there's no need for a recount right here. We can call it not even close. He's victorious before the war begins. This war is only proving what has always been true. Jesus is victorious. He really did conquer through His cross. And now He is lovingly coming to keep every promise He has ever made to His bride, the church. This is the war of love. See it shaped. See right here the love of Christ for you. This, this is a vision of Him lovingly being faithful and true to every promise ever. Is that not the very name by which Christ is called right here? Faithful and true. 
He, he was actually called that all the way back. If you go all the way back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, that's the first place that Christ was ever called faithful and true. As a matter of fact, nearly all of the language that we're going to encounter right here in Revelation 19, nearly all of it echoes things we have seen earlier in Revelation. Why? In order to show us that everything that we have seen before, every promise made, it will all come to pass. Everything is being gathered up together and brought to bear right here on the second coming of Christ. This is Christ, the faithful and true one, coming to keep every promise ever. Coming to bring your salvation to completion. Coming to bring evil to an end. Coming to make all things new. We see that unfolding right here already in verse 11. Verse 11 says that the one called faithful and true righteously judges and makes war. In other words, he does that in order to put an end to evil as he's promised to do all throughout the book of Revelation. Righteously judges, righteously makes war. He's bringing evil to an end. Verse 12 confirms that he can do this because, look at verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In other words, he can put an end to evil because he's the only one that's got the ability to do that. What do I mean by that? He has eyes that are like a flame of fire. That's an echo all the way back from chapter 1. In other words, nothing escapes his sovereign sight. It is a flame, piercing, burning, all-knowing, all-seeing, Fire has been a consistent image of judgment throughout Revelation. In other words, this is showing us no evil escapes the sight of Christ's judgment. No evil escapes his justice. Shades, this is God's loving promise to you. No evil wins. Some of you, all of you, all of us have been sinned against. Some of you have been horribly sinned against, experienced abuse, injustices, pain beyond imagining. Who can make it right? Who can give you justice? Shades, who can make everything right? Who, who can right all the wrongs, all the wars, all the bloodshed, all the oppression, all the, the rapes, the violence, the abuse, the human trafficking, the disease, the disasters, the death. Shades, none of it escapes Christ's fiery gaze of justice. And he will see it through that justice is done and evil is executed. He's the only one with the ability to do that. And he doesn't just have the ability to do that, he has the authority. Because verse 12 says that on his head are many diadems. In other words, many crowns. There's only been two other times that we've heard that word in Revelation used, diadems. And that was once when Satan wore upon his head, the dragon with his seven heads wore seven crowns. Seven, the number of perfection as if he has perfect power and authority. The only other place we heard it is with the beast, with his ten horns, one, one crown on each horn, ten, the number of completion, as if he has complete authority. Satan and the beast pretending, claiming to have perfect and complete authority. But now, it may look like that, Shades, when you look around this world, you see the beast of this world, it may look like they have perfect and complete authority. It may look like Satan is winning, but now, 
we see the only one who has true, unlimited, ultimate authority. His diadems can't even be counted. Christ has many diadems on his head. Ultimate authority because he is the ultimate one. That's how verse 12 concludes. Look at it. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's a callback. You can just assume that everything here is a callback. That's a callback from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. And we don't have time to go back and unpack all of that right now. But what we saw together, if you go back and re-listen to that message, what we saw was that the unknown name was Christ's identity as Yahweh, God in the flesh. That's an identity that has to be revealed. Jesus himself said that. Nobody naturally sees Jesus and goes, yep, God. Luke 10, Jesus says, No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. You can't come to know the Father apart from Jesus. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And here, at the end, Though the world has been blind to the identity of who Christ is, though his name has been unknown, here at his second coming, Christ's identity, his name, will be made known to all when he wages the war of love. Shades, do you see the glory of the one who fights for you? You're meant to. Right here, you are meant to see Christ lovingly ending evil, bringing your salvation to completion. You can literally see that just by looking at His clothes. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. He's called the Word of God because He is the fullest revelation of who God is. Words reveal. Christ reveals who God is. And does He not reveal the love of God for us right here by the very way that He's clothed? Christ the groom. He's got wedding garments just like we saw the bride have last week. You remember that? Last week in Revelation 19 and verse 8 we were told that the bride is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. Christ has wedding garments right here too. In fact, his garments show us how it is possible for the bride to be dressed in white. Because he's dressed in red. His robes, we are told, are dipped in blood. Now, scholars debate all the day long. It's what they do. It's what they have to. They get paid to. Scholars debate. Is blood on Jesus' robe, is it his own? Or is it the blood of his enemies? I mean, on the one hand, he hasn't fought in the battle yet. So this must be his own blood. It's a blood that symbolizes his sacrifice. On the other hand, Christ already rides a white horse to show that the war is already won. So could this blood not convey the same message? He's already conquered. So whose blood is it? The blood of Jesus or the blood of the judged? I believe, you get me today, sorry. I believe it's both. 
Because whenever one wages war, the garments that they wear bear the blood of all who enter into that battle. The enemy and their own. And I think we see that here in the text. I think we see that Jesus' own blood is on his robe for this battle began at the cross. There, the judgment that you, and all of this blood is blood that comes from judgment. And Christ himself has poured out blood, suffering judgment. There upon the cross, the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin, soiled clothes of our lives. If you picture our lives as being like clothing, sin soils them. We do not wear white. And there upon the cross, Jesus shed his blood, the blood that I should have shed, and his shed blood washes away our sin. In fact, Revelation chapter 7 uses that exact picture. Do you remember? The picture of the saints washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb in order to make their sin-soiled robes bright, pure, white. And in Revelation 19, this is what the saints wear. Robes washed white. Look at the very next verse. Revelation 19 and verse 14. And the armies of heaven, those are the saints, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. In other words, because Christ's robe has been dipped in blood, the robe of his bride has been washed white. Because Christ has been sacrificed, his bride gets full forever life. Because Christ has won the war, his bride wins the war. His victory is our victory. Do you not see that in the horses that we ride with him? We're already seated on white horses. This is Christ coming to lovingly bring our salvation to completion. It's his own blood on his robes. He's coming to lovingly bring our salvation to completion and to bring an end to all evil. It's not just his own blood on his robes. For verse 15 says this, keep reading with me. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath God the Almighty. All of this judgment language harkens back to earlier judgment language in Revelation. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 12, chapter 14. All of it being brought forward and referenced here. All of it pointing to an ultimate completion of judgment, an ultimate and complete victory. You see right here that the truth of God's word will pierce evil like a sword. It's a callback to chapter 1. God's word comes forth from the mouth of Christ. It will pierce evil like a sword. It will shatter evil like an iron rod shatters a clay pot. That's a callback to chapter 2 and chapter 12. It will crush evil like a wine press crushes grapes. That's a callback to chapter 14. All of this is ultimately in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 63 and verse 2. Why is your apparel red? He's talking to the Messiah. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? This is the answer of the Messiah. I have trodden the winepress. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Shades, it's not just Jesus' blood on his robes. For Christ comes 
Yes, to bring salvation to completion, but also to bring evil to an end. That's the image. This is the war to end all wars. He comes to wage the war of love, for He alone can. That's what verse 16 declares. It says, on His robe and on His thigh. I think that means on His robe that lays across His thigh. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. The thigh. It's the place you would draw the sword from. We read that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why He can bring the final sword. It's not a literal sword because this is not a literal war. I'm hoping even as I've been using all of this bloodbath war language, I'm hoping we've all been together long enough in Revelation to know that Revelation has made it clear that this is symbolic. Even in this passage alone, we know that this sword is not a literal sword. Christ's sword, we are told right here, is the sword of His Word. It comes from His mouth. In other words, His Word will be the ultimate sword that judges and brings evil to an end. His Word will be the ultimate sword that brings your salvation to completion. Here's my question, Shades. Is the sword of His Word being wielded in your life right now? This sword. Like in this moment, Shades, as you hear this Word proclaimed, Is it, is this word being wielded by the Holy Spirit like a sword to cut away the lies, the lies that the beast will rule forever, his false prophets have it right, you should give in and be a part of Babylon that surrounds you. Is this sword right now being wielded by the Holy Spirit to cut away the lies and to pierce your life with truth? so that you see and believe that Jesus is the only Christ, so that you hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, even when this world makes it look like His testimony isn't true. Shades, this is what Revelation 19 is empowering you to do. It is giving you, right now, it is giving you a lens through which To see the world. It's the lens of the Word. You are meant to see this world through the lens of this Word. And that is what empowers you to cling to Christ. Do you you remember last week when I told you about my two-year-old son, Solomon, who, like all other two-year-olds, only has two hand positions? Do you all remember this? Two-year-olds have the hand positions of open and death grip closed. And I... I told you that when he gets a hold of something like my phone and that that death grip, that the way I get it away from him is by offering him something that he finds superior joy in. Offering him something of superior glory, like I mentioned last week, candy. And the superior joy and the glory of candy transforms the desires of his heart, empowering him to loose his grip on my phone and cling to the candy. Shades. This is what Revelation 19 is doing for you. In other words, we talked about this in theory last week. Here it is in reality. This is how you practice this. 
practically, daily. Revelation 19 is right now holding up Jesus and showing you His superior glory to every other Christ that this world has to offer. It's calling you, beckoning you to superior joy in Him. And if you will see Him, not as this world portrays Him and says that He is, but if you will see Him through the lens of this Word, it will transform the desires of your heart, empowering you to loose your grip on the beast of this world and cling to Christ. Shades. It's it's the false words of false prophets that get you to cling to false Christs. Does that make sense? It is the false words of false prophets that gets you to cling to false Christ, to beasts. So it will be the true word that will get you to cling to the true Christ. Do you see how that works? Shades, how are you going to hold fast? How are we going to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus even when this world makes it look like it's not true? We must see Everything through the lens of this word. What lens do you see the world through? Right now, today, this past week, as you watched election results unfold and all the continuing madness everywhere, What lens do you see that world through? I got asked by one of our church members uh, before the election was called on Saturday if I was worried. And 100%, being honest, I looked at them and I was like, no. Some people may want to say that that's because I don't have to worry. I don't think that that's the truth. I'm concerned about many different things in our country. I'm concerned about all sorts of people in our country. It doesn't mean that the election doesn't matter to me. It doesn't mean that these things aren't important. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be compassionate and passionate about these things. But it means that none of these things are my ultimate hope. Christ is my ultimate hope. What what lens do you see the world through? Through the lens of cable news? Political pundits, social media, the lens of your friends and families, uh, opinions, shades. Pick up this word every day, not just on Sunday when we get together, but every day. I, I challenge, I challenge you this week. Want to get nitty gritty? I challenge you this week to pick up Revelation nineteen, verses eleven to twenty-one every day this week. Just start each morning reading this passage, reading about your coming king. Set your sights on your warrior who is coming to wage the war of love and see, just see if this word doesn't affect the way you see the world. This is how we practically, daily, are empowered to cling to Christ by beholding his glory through his word so that he is our joy. Joyfully see his glory in the war of love. This takes us to the second. I told you that's where we'd spend most of our time, so nobody freak out. We're going to do this last two really quick. This takes us to the second aspect of the war in chapter 19 that we need to see. Number two, the war of faith. The war of 
faith. This war, the war, is the war of faith. And that makes sense, right? I hope that makes sense at this point. This is, this is what we've been talking about. Seeing the glory of Jesus, our coming warrior, should stir up and sustain our faith. This is the war of faith. Verses 17 to 18 confirm that this is precisely what's supposed to happen. This vision is supposed to stir up faith in us. See that with me. Verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." kind of passage that everybody loves saying the word of the Lord, thanks be to God after. This passage right here, these verses, they parallel two things that we have recently seen in Revelation. First, the language of these verses parallels the language of the beginning of chapter 18. You can compare it later. Just look at chapter 18 and verse 1. Chapter 18 and verse 1, we see an angel shining quite like the sun. This angel calls out with a loud voice, saying, Babylon will fall. It will become a haunt for many different things, including unclean birds. Now, fast forward here to chapter 19, and what do we have? We have an angel shining bright like the sun, calling out with a loud voice, specifically to birds. Why? Because Babylon's fall that was predicted back in 18 and verse 1, it has been brought about. The parallel language right here, it's meant for you to say, it's meant for you to see what God promised to do, Babylon will fall. He has actually done. He has brought it about. This parallel language is designed to stir up your faith that God will do what He says He will do. And that's good news, Shades. Unless you're on Babylon's side. Which is why this passage, these verses, have a second parallel, a thematic parallel. This passage parallels the wedding invitation that we just saw last week back up in Revelation 19 and verse 9. If you go back up to Revelation 19, 9, there we were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb where all the saved will feast forever. Here, the birds are invited to the great supper of God. You see the thematic parallels. The birds are invited to the great supper of God where the lost will be a feast forever. So, I wish I could brighten this up for you, but this macabre imagery right here is only going to get more gruesome. Why is it so over the, the top to shake us and to wake us, to call us to faith, to see the seriousness of where Babylon ends. This language is designed to shake us, wake us, call us to faith, call us out of Babylon and to the bride, call us from following the beast to cling to Christ. This is the war of faith. Where is yours placed, shades? Who is your Christ? Jesus or a beast? Shades in the war of faith, 
Revelation implores us to put our faith, our trust in Christ. Our faith, our trust in the one who wages the war of love. Because his waging this war will bring about your ultimate hope. This is the third and final aspect of this war that we need to see here in Revelation 19. 19. Number three, the war of hope. This war, the war, is a war of hope. Look at verses 19 to 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war. Literal translation right there would be to fight the war. This is the war. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to fight the war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with, the, and with it the false prophet who, is in its, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the zooming in on the war of Revelation 16 that we have been looking forward to right here. The war, Revelation 16, 14, where we saw Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, the dragon, all gathered up, all fully and finally defeated. This is a replaying, a zooming in on that war. We've already zoomed in back in chapter 17 and 18. We already zoomed in on the fall of Babylon. Now Babylon's back right here. Do you notice that? Babylon, the beast people, they're here again. They're the armies of the beast. They're those who've taken the mark and worshipped his image. How are they back? We saw Babylon fall in 17 and 18. Remember, it's because this is not a succession of events. This is a zooming in on the same event to bring into focus different things. 17 and 18 zoomed in on Babylon, brought that into focus. Now we're backing up, traveling over the same time again, the same war, but we're zooming in this time not on Babylon. They're not the focus the beast and the false prophet are. The beast and the false prophet are the focus right here. The focus is on their end because we've already been told Babylon will fall, but we mentioned that's awfully hard to believe when it seems like the beast she rides will never die. When one world power falls, another one just seems to rise and take its place. We live our our lives constantly surrounded by voices promoting these powers as the true way to security and satisfaction to salvation. Shades, in the midst of that, how are we going to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus when so many false prophets promote so many beastly false Christs that daily make it seem like the gospel isn't true? How, Shades? Hope. That's what's being held out to us right here. Hope. And when I use that word, I'm not using it how we normally do. We normally use the word hope every day to express an uncertainty. Like, I hope my team wins the game. I hope I get into that school or I get that promotion. I hope that next year will be better than 2020. But that's not how the Bible talks about hope. Biblical hope is not an expression of an uncertainty. It's the expectation of a guarantee. Biblical hope is not the expression of an uncertainty. It is the expectation of a guarantee. And the hope 
guaranteed by the gospel right here in Revelation 19 is that the beast for all his raging and the false prophet for all his proclaiming are both doomed to defeat. Revelation 13 asks the question, who's like the beast? Who can fight against him? Revelation 19 is the answer. Verse 19 says, The beast and the false prophet gather with all their might for the war, but did you see it turns out to be no war at all? Christ simply wins by his word. The only sword swung is the sword of his mouth. And the beast and his false prophet, as a result of the word, the true word of Christ that cuts through every lie they've ever spoken, beast and the false prophet as a result of his word experience eternal judgment judgment that is so often symbolized in revelation by fire here they are thrown into a lake of it and all who follow them likewise perish slain we're told by the sword of christ's mouth in other words judged by the truth of his word and the birds are gorged on their flesh that's not literal shades like birds feasting upon bodies that had been strewn across a battlefield that's what happened when the war was over the image that the message being communicated in this imagery is that the war is over the fight is final the war to end all wars has ended this imagery is communicating the full and final end of evil evil has been consumed do you see that picture no, none none of this battle imagery is meant to be literal i've told y'all before this this isn't us coming back beside jesus on a literal horse holding our swords being like come on satan here we go riding into the battle that, that's not what's going on right here all of this war imagery is symbolic for christ's coming and finally and fully fulfilling all he has promised in his word that's the sword he comes swinging to bring full and final victory the sword of his word the king of kings and the lord of lords he is the one who is faithful and true he will bring about all that he has promised the end of evil and the consummation of your salvation shades your king is coming this is your hope see it in the word so that it may sustain your faith that christ has waged and won the war of love i'll close with this uh, in the final volume of Lord of the Rings, we began with Lord of the Rings. It's only appropriate to be in there. Final volume of Lord of the Rings, which is entitled The Return of the King. It's a little on the nose, Tolkien, if you ask me, but you know. In The Return of uh, the King, the human kingdom of Gondor, which I know you all really care about the names of these places. The human kingdom of Gondor has long been without a king. And atop this beautiful uh, city that has fallen into decay there's this white tree and it's known as the tree of the king because when gondor had a king this tree would, would beautifully bloom 
haven't had a king for a long time, and so this tree seems to be nearly dead. And even though it seems like it is near death's doorstep, going to rot and fall apart, there's still a special unit of soldiers that constantly stand guard around this tree. Pippin, a hobbit, asks why. Why do they guard this tree that's nearly dead? In the film version, I love Gandalf's answer, Gandalf the wizard. He says, they guard it because they have hope. Hope that one day it will flower. A king will come and this city will be as it once was before it fell into decay. Shades, how are we going to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus even when it doesn't look like it is true, even when it looks like a withering tree in a world of decay? We will hold on to the gospel because we have hope. And not hope that's an expression of an uncertainty, hope that is the expectation of a guarantee. This word, not some white tree, but this word gives us hope and the Spirit wields it like a sword in our lives. A hope that a king will come and creation will be as it once was before it fell into decay. Shades, let's see this world through the lens of this word as this word holds up our hope and sustains our faith in the one who has waged and won the war of love. Shades, let's see Jesus Jesus through this word. He is our hope. Let's see the truths of this war so that we may ultimately cling to our warrior, cling to Christ who has already won the war.